<laughs> Entrance applause. Hello, everybody. Uh, good to see so many people here to hear a discussion about musical theatre. Um, I'm Adam Lenson. I'm a theatre director and dramaturg specialising in new musical theatre, specialising in British musical theatre as well. Um, I've always loved musicals, but initially I was kind of afraid to give myself that label because it kind of has various associations and assumptions that people might click onto the idea of, of being a director of musicals. Um, but I eventually got sort of brave enough and passionate enough and grumpy enough to, to say, want to say, uh, I do musicals. <laughs> That's primarily what I do at the moment. I, I, you know, I dabble in other things, but musicals are where I, I'm living at the moment. Um, and the sort of stuff I'm interested in making is stuff that redefines our traditional notions of what a musical is, that kind of is breaking the idea of what a musical has traditionally been. Uh, and I just directed a show called Superhero at Southwark Playhouse, and I directed a new musical called The Sorrows of Satan uh, at the Tristan Bates earlier this year, and I've been working on a rock musical called Wasted about the Bronte siblings. Uh, alongside me today, I'm very excited to have this eminent panel and passionate <laughs> panel. I've just been talking to them uh, in the green room, and if, it, if our chat out here is like what was in there, it'll be good. Um, so next to me is Savan Tavuk Dijan, uh, actor, writer, dramaturg. He currently serves as the musical theatre new writing manager at Theatre Royal Stratford East. He's also the co-founder of the New Musical Development Collective, which I run with him, and has lived and worked in both New York and London. Next to him, Victoria Saxton, the executive director of Mercury Musical Developments, a national arts organisation devoted to nurturing new musical theatre writing and writers. She's also a visiting lecturer at Central School of Speech and Drama, a lyricist and librettist in her own right who trained at New York University Tisch School of the Arts, and also a, a previously a script reader and a facilitator on the new musical theatre writers group at the National Theatre. And next to her, Anthony Drew, an award-winning lyricist whose work alongside composer George Stiles includes as I'm sure you know, Honk, Just So, Betty Blue Eyes, Soho Cinders, and the recent West End runs of Half a Sixpence and Win in the Willows. So, um, let's kick this off. So, just like a, a, a little bit of waffle from me, uh, I've been directing for 10 years, and during that time, I've always loved and worked on musical theatre. And initially, when I first started, it very much felt like musicals were only found in Britain in the commercial West End, and it was also felt, 10 years ago, like everyone had a side. So they would either say, I hate musicals or I love musicals. There's nothing very much in between. And I've noticed, in the last five or six years, I'd say, about halfway through my career, if you can call it that, that things have been starting to change, that the sides are shifting, The people who used to say they hated musicals are now making them, or at least developing them, <laughs> or at least liking them, or watching them. Uh, in addition to that, there are whispers in the most curious literary departments and producers' offices, and the, some of the more traditional ones, about how to make a new musical, how to develop a new British musical, how to compete with you know, shows like Hamilton and Dear Evan Hansen, how to innovate in the medium of musical theatre. And... Um, there are also subgenres that seem to be evolving, plays with songs, um, gig theatre, folk opera, name some more. Um, the, the other ways of, of describing things that basically are the integrated form of music and theatre. Uh, musicals seem to be getting cooler. They seem to be having a breakthrough moment. Maybe that's because 10 years ago they were bullied a bit, and now they've grown up and <laughs> look more handsome. Um, so, <laughs> anyway, what we're going to talk about today is where we are with musicals and where they're going. 
what the landscape is like, what the craft of music is like, what the style is like, and how they might change. Um, we're only here for an hour. I've spoken for five minutes of it already, so I'm going to kick off very quickly with, with my first question to this illustrious panel. Um, my first question is, Follies uh, is currently being resplendently revived in the Olivier. Who's here, who has seen Follies already? Good. Um, so Follies is, uh, as, as you may know, or uh, first-hand or otherwise, uh, a musical with no traditional narrative, with no traditional plot. It's about memory, the pain and anguish of feeling like you've missed your life. Uh, it's about the decay of show business and art and is decidedly non-linear. Um, and it was written 46 years ago in America. And it's undoubtedly art. It's, you wouldn't look at it and go, that's a commercial musical. And in America, as well as having shows like Wicked, The Lion King, Book of Mormon, The Producers, they also have, to name but a few, a very small few, Fun Home, The Light in the Piazza, Next to Normal, The Scotra Boys, Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet, and that's just on Broadway. So I guess my question <laughs> for the panel is, is there a disparity between art and the commercial more in England and in Britain, and is it changing, I suppose? Is it beginning to change? It is beginning to change. I mean, I, I moved to London four, almost four years ago, and the, the rapid shift in growth that I've seen in musical mm. theatre in just four years has been remarkable. I only started working in, in arts administration two years ago. My position was newly created at the theatre, never existed before, and it's the, really the first of its kind, which to me, I think, signals a massive shift that the UK theatre industry is really looking at developing musicals more and more, and I think part of it is just time to develop sort of that palette and that, mm. um, that desire to create kind of art musicals. I, I don't hate that. I hate that term. It's just, mm. it's just a musical. Um, mm. So I, I think that that's part of it. And I would, uh, to go on from that, to Please. segue beautifully, yeah, um, I think a huge, when I came back from New York in about 2010, since then I've noticed a huge shift in about the last five or seven years, which I think stems and is, is down to a couple of reasons. And one of those is the Arts Council England realised that there was a bit of a talent gap, I guess you could say, because in the UK we've got Andrew Lloyd Webber, Styles and Drew, and then who? I think we're probably preaching a bit to the choir here, but the average person on the street probably couldn't tell you who the younger next generation of musical theatre writers are. And I think the Arts Council England recognised that about five, seven years ago and started heavily investing in grassroots musical theatre projects and writers. Um, one of the things they did was make the company I run, Mercury Musical Developments with Musical Theatre Network, a national portfolio organisation. And so I think we're beginning to see the kind of fruits of that because it takes about, as the seven was saying, kind of three to five years to get musicals up. So I think there is a huge shift, as you're saying, and I think that's part of, of what we should do. And to go back to your, to your earlier question about, you know, how do we get to Fun Home? How do we get to the American model? Is we do what the Americans do. To the Americans, musical is Shakespeare, right? Is their Shakespeare. And they take it very seriously as a craft. They study it, they adore it, they invest in it. And that's what we need to do and have started to do in the last five to seven years. I, I think, um, I don't like to, describe musicals as being commercial or art musicals either. I, there's, there's two sorts, good ones and bad ones. <laughs> and, and if they're good, they're going to be commercial. And, and some, of the, some, of the na some of the shows you listed, um, for instance, uh, we, George and I were both in New York recently. Great Comet was his favourite show yeah. of all the ones we saw mm. on Broadway. Mine was Come From Away. 
They are unlikely musicals. And that's the difference, I think. I think the American producers, regionally and on Broadway, are taking more risks with less likely subject matters. Mm. I can't imagine that we would have opened a show here, like Dear Evan Hansen, about someone with a social anxiety disorder with an unknown cast by relatively unknown writers and put it into a 1,500-seat house. Mm. But on Broadway, you, you're, they're queuing around the block to get a ticket. Mm. And it's somehow, it, it's become commercial. It didn't start off commercial. When I first saw Dear Evan Hansen, it was actually quite easy to get a ticket. Commercial theatre is theatre that people want to see, and, and that's the difference. Mm. Occasionally you'll get, I think some of what Adam Cork did with, um, with London Road mm. and the, the recent verbatim one that you know, they just did at the Donmar is slightly more artful and you would need a certain type of a theatre to, to try and attempt to pull off something like that mm. and without necessarily having your eye on this has to make a vast amount of money. This is weird seesaw, like in New York, you don't have a lot of, well, there's no subsidized money whatsoever, but you have more theaters that will invest in workshop and produce musicals, which means you have, there's a much easier road, I say that with much weight attached to it, to go from an off-Broadway house to a Broadway run. Whereas in the UK, there aren't a lot of theaters yet producing and developing new musicals, but there's a lot more subsidized money, which means mm -hmm. that as artists, you can develop your own projects. And I think somehow we need to sort of marry those two a bit. Mm. I mean, America's never going to get funding to do the art, so we can forget about that. Mm. But I think there are more theatres in London, and just the last year alone, that are now starting to get inter be interested in developing mm. musicals. And just in the two years that I've worked at Stratford, the artists that I've met, and even go going up to the Fringe this year was remarkable. I met three first-time composers written their first musicals, and they were amazing. And all I keep thinking is, these are the people that we need to sort of support. Mm. So, yeah, because I, I often say that in America, there's, there is non-for-profit theatre and then there's profit theatre, but there's no, there's not quite as big a, um, subs there's no subsidy, so there's no mm. subsidised and non-subsidised. And uh, just kind of leading on from that, do you think that the existence of a kind of, what seems to be a bit of a boundary fence between the subsidised theatre and the commercial theatre is a specifically problematic thing for musical theatre? I'm going to jump in here. I think, I'm not quite going to answer your question, <laughs> but kind of. I think in the UK, one of the recent trends is that the really exciting, innovative, brilliant work, in my opinion, is happening in the subsidised sector in regional theatres. Just two examples are Flowers for Mrs Harris, which um, producer Vicky Graham started, ended up at Sheffield, and everybody's talking about Jamie. I think it's partly because they're subsidised that I guess they don't have to answer to scary investors, mm -hmm. that they can take those artistic risks. So I think, actually, we're really lucky. And I'm going to stop talking there because I realise I wasn't answering your question. I mean, the tricky thing with New York is not-for-profit isn't really not-for-profit. I mean, the not-for-profit mm. organisations are very much for-profit. <laughs> and they're actually really problematic in, just in terms of salaries that they pay actors. Like, a Broadway show that transfers from a not-for-profit organisation the actors don't get paid Broadway wages. You get paid your off-Broadway wages even though the theaters are making Broadway incomes off the shows. It's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> but does artistic success, is that the same? Should it equate with commercial success? Because didn't a recent run of Sweeney Todd, that e didn't even recoup its commercial investment, right? But I'm pretty sure everyone in this room would say that that's an incredible piece of art, right? What? What should, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> Would it, uh, Anthony, do you have a, a thought about um, No, I just think there's a, the, the biggest difference I've found, having worked in both America and in the UK, is the 
interest in new musical writing mm. all across America, which we are beginning to nurture in this country, in the regional theatres. And it was great that Sheffield did, everyone's talking mm -hmm. about Jamie and Mrs. Yeah. Harris, wasn't it? And, um, and Nikolai did um, Adrian Mole up at mm -hmm. Leicester. It's beginning to, and, and when, when George and I, because we've been doing this a long, long time, so when you're talking about five years and what mm -hmm. the changes you've seen, I've been writing for 34 years. And in that time, when George and I started out, there were no schemes to help writers mm. get their shows put on until 1985 when the Performing Rights Society launched the Vivian Ellis Prize. There was nothing, mm. but nor were there many people writing. And it's, this, it's, it's kind of the same argument that you get nowadays. Why are, there no, why are we not getting more female writers for musical theatre? Until female writers start to see that, you know, you've got Janine Tussauds and you've mm. got one or two others, but until you see that women are writing musicals that are just as good as men writing musicals, People of, who are my age, when I started out, would not think, oh, that's a potential mm. career option. I could try and write musicals. And there is no simple career path for a musical There's theatre not. writer. I did a degree in zoology, <laughs> and, I, and, and I thought I was going to be a biology teacher. And in my final year at university, I met George. We saw Sweeney Todd in the drama mm. at Plymouth, a small production. I'd never seen a Sondheim show before. Mm. I was so moved by the drama, the music, the wit, the, 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 the scariness of the mm. story, that literally in the car from Plymouth back to Exeter, I said to George, do you fancy writing a musical? Because it was an experience I'd never had before. I'd mm. seen Hello Dolly in Oklahoma and some mm. of those musicals that my parents would take me to, but nothing like that. And it was that that inspired me to write. It didn't inspire me to want to emulate Sondheim, like I don't mm. now want to write rap because I've seen Hamilton. <laughs> but it doesn't mean I can't think it's the most wonderful musical. And that was the same with, with seeing Sweeney Todd. Mm. But in America, there are such schemes, mm. uh, as we're now beginning to develop in this country, but there are also, there's a hunger in the regions mm. to find the next musical that might become a success. And the, the theatres are getting together and they're saying, look, we found, you know, say, Honk is an example. I wrote to 10 theatres in America to say, would you be interested in receiving a CD and a script for Honk? They all wrote back. Eight of them said yes, two of them said it's not for us, but those two have now subsequently done it. Um, <laughs> hurrah. Um, and, and, but they were, they were slipping Honk in because they have such huge subscription seasons at their regional theatres. So North Shore Music Theatre, which has done three or four of our shows, and Goodspeed Opera House, they will, they will do the student Prince and Miss Saigon and Les Miserables, but they'll slip Honk in. Mm. So people are almost seeing it without realising they're seeing a new musical. Mm -hmm. And they then have sort of se a sense of ownership because they feel that they've been part of the gestation period of that musical becoming a success. They become ambassadors for the show in a way. And, it, and, the, and all the theatres in America are trying to vie for who's going to find the next Hamilton, the next Dear Evan Hansen, and the next Come From Away, or whatever it's going to be. I also think it's, it's, it has a lot to do with audience development as well. Mm. I, the writers that I'm engaging with in, in the UK are a lot, taking a lot more risks formally and structurally. Like, in the UK, we're ahead of that game when, compared to America, and especially musicals. Like, you know, just from the writers we have in the New Musical Development Collective, they're doing things that no one's done before, which is great, and they're being risky, and they're trying to sort of change the game. But a lot of it is also trusting audiences to accept new stories and new kinds of theatre, not worrying so much about nostalgia theatre and musicals that constantly are looking backwards or not treating music... That my fear is that musical theatre is going to become a museum and it can't just be about the revivals and about the American imports because there mm -hmm. is the ability and there is the hunger to create a uniquely British musical form. Mm -hmm. And it's there. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm not worried that it won't happen. I'm... I'm aware that I'm very impatient about it because there are so many amazing writers that I engage mm -hmm. with and I go, these musicals need to be supported and on stage 
not ones where we're just throwing people into a room who've never even seen a musical before. Mm. I mean, that's lightning in a bottle. I agree. And I, like, this isn't specifically about the writing of new musicals, but I was saying to someone last week that the, I saw the birthday party, how into a new revival it was announced, and I was thinking, God, how many revivals of the birthday party have, have existed that I could have seen by Harold Pinter? And then I was thinking, how many revivals of Les Mis have existed that I could see? Um, no, but it's typical in the play world that you, you get to see plays reinterpreted, refocused, re you know, shifted. Um, you know, you get to see Chekhov, you get to see Hamlet uh, with Shakespeare and Hamlet, you know, all the time. And, and is there something, I guess I'd, I'd ask you guys if something about the fact that musical theatre does tend to calcify around its original productions that mm. does lead to a kind of an intrinsic sense of lack of interpretability, that's not a word, uh, when it comes to musicals. Well, I think there's a bit of a, I mean, there's a couple of things there. One, don't forget that, was it 1930s, 40s, uh, theatres had a really hard time getting people to come and see new plays. You can only come to revivals, but now theatres sell far more tickets for new plays, I think, statistically, than revivals. So we will get there. We've just got to keep working. Um, and I think the reason that some famous iconic musical museum pieces is... Uh, I love licensing houses to death, by the way, if I'm saying, but I think some of the people who own the copyright and the licensing to big musicals say the choreography has to be done a certain way, the staging has to be done a certain way, so young, exciting directors like yourself aren't given free reign, so I think that doesn't help well, you. Well, it's usually the, um, the, 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 the person who generated yeah. the show in the first place, yeah. rather than the licensing houses. We love licensing houses. They have to do that mm. if Jerome Robbins has said that's how it yeah. has to be. Um, mm. I, I, I think we are seeing more revivals. I mean, Follies, this is probably the fifth or sixth different version of Follies mm -hmm. I've seen, this version here. And I know Cameron, obviously, when he creates a show, and his big policy was he wanted um, the world to see the same show. So Lame is in, in London, it's the same as Lame is in Tokyo, it's the same as Lame is in, on Broadway. So uh, until that whole um, franchise ends, people will not be doing a brand new production, unless it's an unlicensed production, but which qu some people do. I ask a question why we need to... Look, I love musicals. I'd love to see as many different musicals revived as possible. The problem is, is that people are very limited in their knowledge of the musicals that have existed. And when I hear people say things like, well, we've revived almost all the musicals we can, I go, no, you haven't. <laughs> you have n I can guarantee you have not revived almost all those musicals. And nine times out of ten, I wonder if the reason for the revival is simply economic. Like, I don't understand the need to reinterpret a musical along modernist takes when you can just commission, produce a new musical. Like there's a production of Music Man right now in America that, ha that uses social media and TV screens <laughs> and has like a mixed race cast and cut out two songs and on the surface I go, well that's interesting, but if you want to talk about misogyny in the modern world, why not just do a musical about misogyny in the modern world <laughs> written today as opposed to reinterpreting an old musical. But that may also be my writer self because yeah. as a writer, I don't want my stuff getting reinterpreted from what I originally intended it to be. But isn't part of the problem also, uh, kind of on, in a tangent to that, that artistic directors and venues aren't actually aware of the talent that is currently in the UK and that we have, which is part of the reason that MMD and MTN decided to do this national showcase of new work called BEAM, because we went, our artistic, our artistic relationship manager at the Arts Council took us to meet all the big artistic directors of the big theatres, and we very quickly realised that they had no idea 
of the new writing that was in the UK. So we created Beam to connect new writers with the people who'd be in a position to actually help and develop their work. Which is So I think that's also why people do a lot of revivals, because they just aren't aware of what the you know, incredible talent we have here. And one of the brilliant things about Beam, which we did for the first time in 2016, is a, uh, a British theatre producer said, I had no idea there was this much talent in the UK and there's enough talent and enough potential shows here to fill a theatre for an entire season. So I think that is MMD and MTN's job, is very much to kind of showcase and champion the new writers as well. And I think that should hopefully start to have a bit of a knock-on effect. But there are a lot of incredible artistic directors. They are beginning to click. You know, Rufus Norris here, Nikolai Foster, as you said. There are, part of the reason for the sea change is there are some artistic directors who are taking it seriously and do want to invest and are interested and are finally listening. But can I just say, I don't buy the whole... I, did, I didn't know that there were X amount of people doing this and this. I, that to me is just laziness. That's just like saying, well, we couldn't find a black actor to do this part, so we cast someone else mm -hmm. in it. It's like, they're, they're out there. I guarantee you if I can find them, mm -hmm. and I'm not a homegrown Brit, that anyone can find them. It, doesn't, it, it, it does take some effort, it does take some like, footwork, but that's why you create positions like mine and have people go up there mm -hmm. and be the soldier and, and find those people. But the, yeah, I, remember, I read this... Um, there was a book, like a pamphlet produced for National Book Day a few years ago called The Unknown Unknown. And it was basically saying how the reason we need bookshops is so that you can walk in to find the thing you don't know that you want. You walk <laughs> in, there's a table on there, someone's curated it, and the thing you didn't know when you walked in, the unknown unknown, you can go and buy. And so I think sometimes the same thing is true of, of, of musicals and writers and anything that we're looking for, that you sometimes need someone to curate things mm. so that the thing you didn't know you <laughs> didn't want, uh, is you realise that you might want. Um, I mean, I, Beam was definitely a moment for me that I, w I suddenly was like, a musical's cool? I was sort of sitting in this theatre just full of, full of people, kind of, you know, who just felt that they could talk for hours, for days about, about these stuff. And, and suddenly, you know, again, when I, when I started, I, you know, sitting here, sitting here with you, Anthony, you have been doing it for ages, and you talk about it with such passion and... and, and fluency and, you know, with an academic edge and all of that stuff. But I just, I just know that I met so many people who were like, musicals are flimsy. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I want to I talk about Brechtian mechanics in musicals. I want to talk about the diegetic and the non-diegetic. And won't you let me? Um, <laughs> like, no, but seriously, I go, I sit, I sit in, a, I assistant directed for like seven years. And I would sit in the rehearsal room for a Shakespeare or a Pinter, and people would deconstruct for a week. They would talk in, in intense deconstructive terms about what the writer was up to. Musicals, you learn the notes and get on your feet, and no one in, your, in their right mind. I've not met an actor, I'd say 5% of actors know the difference between a diegetic and a non-diegetic song. Um, Should you explain it for everyone here? So diegetic song is something... for me as well. <laughs> <laughs> he knows. So a, di a diegetic song is when you, the person knows that they're singing or where the source of it is, is literal. So if I go, I'm going to put on a record, that, that song that comes out of the record, or if someone goes, I'm going to play you a song, that's diegetic. Uh, if someone is speaking and they turn into a song and no one knows they're singing, um, that is non-diegetic. I went with my friend Michael Connolly to see <laughs> Follies and he said, oh, I hope I'm still here is non-diegetic, mm. no, is diegetic, because they changed it from diegetic to non-diegetic in, in one of the versions. Um, it's both. 
It's both diegetic and non-diegetic. She starts by telling a group of people that she's still here. They leave. She sings to herself. Um, the song splits itself in half, like Folly splits itself in half between those two things. Anyway, I won't bore you with my meta-analysis. He's nerding of out. He's nerding out. <laughs> <laughs> like, I won't bore you with my meta-analysis of Follies, but I guess my question is, why are we afraid to get, get thoughtful when it comes to musicals? I don't or think all? we're afraid. Yeah, I just think we're just not used to... I, mm. I just... To be honest with you, Adam, in, in the States, like all the musicals I did as an actor, we didn't really do that either. I mean, that's sort of like the provenance of, of geeks like you and I who sit around and we talk about this stuff ad nauseum, which I enjoy. Mm. But we, there is, we do analyze the text, we do analyze the music. And I think, I think uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's just a, an, it just needs to keep going. This is an experience really? thing. But I think you're right. I mean, this is exactly the kind of conversation we had. I did a two-year master's degree at NYU in musical theater writing. It's kind of the only degree type in the world of its kind. We're slowly starting to do ones here. I've did one at Central, uh, Mountview, Goldsmith, a lot of other higher educational facilities are starting to do degree courses precisely. So there is that mm -hmm. career path for people who want it. And what they did in America, we spent two years deconstructing and analyzing great texts of what has gone before us. And I think we do need to do that here and we're starting to do that here. Um, and I think that is how we take the form forward and make it ours. I mean, that's why we, you know, I mean, when I came to the idea for New Musical Development Collective, that's what was at the heart mm. of it. Like after talking to, and Victoria was my, my tutor at Central and I was there. And then I met Adam and I sort of went, there is no sort of like mm. group that supports musical theater writers to, to not just teach them the craft, but give them the space to develop it. I think that's what, oh, the gods have spoken. Um, and that's what I think is really needed, mm, that space absolutely. to make the mistakes, take the risks, and, and not be afraid to learn something about the craft. And that sustained development support, which brings us neatly into the Stars and Drew year-long mentorship scheme. Um, <laughs> well, to say that, I was, like, was going to loop back there, because obviously, uh, Anthony dropped the idea of the Vivian Ellis Award being kind of one thing amongst nothing else at the time. Yeah. But there are many opportunities mm. now. So there are, there you, are ma many more so, yeah. Um, yeah. The Vivian Ellis Prize was in 1985, and, and George and I entered that with Just So, and it was a one-off competition to honour Vivian Ellis's 80th birthday. Um, and it was, you know, for us it was obviously thrilling. It was, I think it was £500 prize, and, but it introduced us to Cameron and Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice and Don Black and Mike Batt, and all the people whose names we knew as as zoology student, <laughs> 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 um, and but there really wasn't anything else. And to be honest, it was really only a pat on the back at that point. Although Cameron showed great interest in Just So, and then eventually bought the rights to it and started producing it, um, it was kind of a pat on the back. It wasn't helping us become better writers. And what I heard about in America um, was that the both the the BMI Lehm and Engel. Mm -hmm, weekly thing would be teaching people like Stephen Flatty and Aarons and people like Alan Menken and, and um, Maury Eston were going in as, as tutors for this thing. And I thought, why haven't we got anything like this in the UK? And increasingly, with, with Mercury and with Perfect Pitch and with Page to Stage, opportunities are arising for, for young writers. I'll say young writers. They usually are young nowadays compared to me. Um, young writers have some sort of a a way of getting their show put on. And what George and I wanted to do with our mentorship scheme is to find, a, find a, a writing team or a writer and nurture them through a year and just act as a support mechanism and a comfort blanket in a way for them. The, we have to have a selection process, of course, even though it's not really a competition per se, we need to know which one we're going to mentor, and you can only really do that through a selection process. So we have a, a team of judges who whittle them down. George and I read the last 12 or 15, 
and listen to them. They're complete musicals. They're complete first draft musicals. And we'll select a team who we think we can help. And they come down to my place in France and spend a week absolutely intensive putting their show apart and asking questions. And then they go away and do some rewrites. And then we do a lab, which is open to MMD members, where they will show some of their, their material, mm -hmm. 20, 20 minutes, half an hour of their material, accept questions, listen to their peers asking and questioning. They go away for another three months, they have another one of these things, and it ends with a full reading of their musical mm -hmm. at the end of the year. And even beyond the year, because the, the, we're into the second year of it now, and, and, and Darren and Reese, who, who won the first one with The Wicker Husband, we said, don't let the end of the year be the end of the year. We're at the end of a phone if you need us. And they have rung because they've had some offers to do the show. And it's, you know, and we'll say, well, how about this one with that one? Mm -hmm. you know, and, and get those two people to mm -hmm. talk together and see if we can get the show put on. And it, it's, it, it's, it's not just an altruistic thing. We, George and I learn from this too. We, just by pulling someone's musical apart and putting it together makes you vocalise ideas and why something works and why something doesn't work. Which you, when you're just sitting there writing a musical, you're not necessarily having that conversation with anybody. You're just doing the writing. But you, what also you do is you give an incredible showcase and platform to those writers. And because of your name reputation, you'll get industry to pay attention and actually come to a showcase. I suppose that helps a bit. It he does. says modestly, yes, <laughs> it does. But also the process that you put them through mm. is what's so necessary and needed in, in all the theatres, because too often, I mean, the danger is, is that stuff happen, gets produced and it's half-baked, it's not fully mm. formed, which yeah. then makes people go, oh, well, I don't like musicals, that wasn't any good. And I think that sort of like year-long process mm. is so important. And that's what Cameron did for George and I. Cameron is forensic about making you be more rigorous with yourself mm. and, and, and it, what the frustrating thing with Cameron is that sometimes he he senses a problem area without knowing necessarily how to fix it and he will sometimes come up with a solution and he, he'll say I know this is going you're not going to have this but how about this and at least it makes you go away and think of something to counteract whatever it was he just suggested <laughs> 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 but it's rigorous you know and he's rigorous with with Julian Fellows writing the scripts who, you know most recently I've worked with um and he will say, you don't need that word, you don't need that line, you're repeating yourself there. And you have, you know, it's, it really is a craft, writing a mm -hmm. musical, and it's very, very hard. Yes. And I wouldn't hard. have ever tackled the idea of writing a book for a musical if I hadn't written the lyrics for a musical with a book by Keith Waterhouse and Willis Hall, sadly no longer with us, from whom I earned a vast amount, mostly mm -hmm. about how to be succinct mm -hmm. and not to hang around and not to fall in love with your text too much because <laughs> you've got to make room for a song in a minute. And, and they were wonderful tutors to me. And I, was, I, I learned on the job by rewriting a musical called The Card, which they'd written the book for. And we were constantly changing stuff. And, um, and I, I just wanted to f learn more from them because all I could do was gut a dogfish or something. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's interesting because um, um, I, was, I was referred to the fact that, you know, Picasso uh, apparently hated studying. Um, wanted to not make formal art, but spent eight years studying um, in art school. And T.S. Eliot said, you know, before you can write, you can, write, you can de deconstruct verse form, you have to understand verse form. And I have noticed that people will often think that they can write a musical <gasps> without, without, having done any of yeah. the, without having done any of the prep, and by potentially saying, I can look forward 
better if I've not looked back first. Because, you know, I, I'm, I'm faced in the right direction already, as opposed to all the people who are kind of looking back in love with Carousel or in love with West Side Story. I just, and that always seems weird to me, because mm -hmm. I think any medium, whether it's science, philosophy, they've always kind of, uh, poetry, art, they've always functioned by standing on the shoulders of the giants before you. And I do think we have a problem with we some, I have observed a problem with giant standing in this country when it comes to musical theatre. I just yeah, I've th I have that. So MMD, we have about 450 writers across the UK and internationally, and this is such a huge problem. People say, but you want us to reinvent the musical and do the new British musical, so what's the point of me looking at anything that went before? I'm just going to do something new. This is my favourite topic, by the way, for hours. But I think one of the things is, as you were saying, it's incredibly hard and takes um, a lot of work. But I think, I think we now have a magical answer to this question in the form of the musical Hamilton. Because I think it perfectly exemplifies why you should study what has gone before and you'd be a fool not to. Because Hamilton is a brilliant amalgamation of Lamez. Gilbert and Sullivan, um, so many other musicals that we all don't know. And Lynn Malmel Miranda, the writer of the musical Hamilton, although everyone describes it as a rap musical, he has an encyclopedic knowledge of the canon of the history mm. of musical theatre. And he absolutely could not have written Hamilton if he didn't know and have that knowledge of what has gone before. What makes him a bit of a genius is the way he's kind of mushed it and melded it with the kind of musical hip-hop rap language we have today. But I think that's a really, I think that's a great answer when we meet these writers who say it's not important to know what Sondheim did, it's not important to know what um, West Side Story did. Um, I think oh, we can you, show you, Hamilton. When you see Lynn in conversation with Cameron, yeah. he says he couldn't have written Hamilton if he hadn't seen Oliver and Lamez, yeah. well. because that's the, you know, it's the same as George and I. We wouldn't mm -hmm. have written anything if we hadn't seen Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals and and um, Hello Dolly and mm. uh, Neil Simon's uh, Marvin mm -hmm. Hammer shows. And also, I think, I think um, Jeremy Sams, who's quite a well-known musical theatre director, he said, you know, musicals are very tricky, but at the moment, they're largely still in the same form. And you'd be a bit of a fool not to kind of look what people who are probably far smarter than you have done with the same... Like, how do you open Act 2? That's always going to be a problem. <laughs> what do you do at the 11 o'clock dip? Like, have a look at what, you know, giants have done before mm. you. Doesn't mean you have to copy it, doesn't mean you have to pastiche it, but look at the tools and then use it to your advantage or in your, your own way. Well, listen, Bob Fosse said it. It's 90% of what you steal, 10% of what you yeah. make up. And he had a pretty good <laughs> career, so he knows. Yeah. I think there's this weird fear that if you study the form, you mm. lose your ability and you lose your talent, or mm. you're going to get asked to write an old musical. Like, no one walks into um, New York City Ballet and goes, I've got some point shoes, I'm going to be a dancer today. Like, you need to have that same ground. Mm. You need to know the rules so you know how to break the rules. They're not even rules, they're just principles. It's like mm. we talk about all the time. There's no such thing as a rule. Understand the principle. If you want to try and break it, break it, but understand that sometimes mm. they're, they're watertight, they're solid. Mm. And I think if you don't have that basic grounding of it, raw talent is only going to get you mm. so far. And a story that people want to be told because, you know, you, you, sometimes you see a musical where you think, it's a, it's a brilliant story, but I can't really remember the score, but it kind of worked when I was in the theatre, but I'm, I'm not necessarily going, going to go buy the cast album, and I may not be able to tell you the title of any of the songs in it, but I, while I was in the theatre, the whole thing worked, mm -hmm. and, but it was working because the story and the characters were working. And you can teach that, I would argue. There is a craft, there are tools, not rules, as yeah. you say. It comes through interrogation. I mean, even mm -hmm. uh, the amount of times I've asked writers, why do you want to tell this story, and they cannot answer that question mm -hmm. is remarkable to me. It, it's like, you, 
know the story that you want to tell, and if you know why you want to tell it, why you're passionate about it, the work will come through if all the other skills are there. It not, it's not perfect. It's not a perfect form whatsoever. But if you go into it saying, I'm going to write the next Hamilton or the, mm. or the, or the next Les Mis, you're doomed from the beginning. Mm. Don't, do you. Write what you want to write. Don't write what everyone else has written. Uh, why are you grinning like a no, Cheshire I can't cat? More. No, because um, I'm sitting on this stage, so I have to ask this question, um, which is, um, I love musicals. I don't love all musicals, but I love the potential for what a musical can do. And being at a musical has been the mo- some of the most de- defining moments of my life in a theatre. Um, and I, I observe the fact that the words, I hate musicals, are much more prevalent than things like, I hate films, I hate books. Uh, and it's simply just a medium. I, I also refute the idea that musicals are a genre. I, refute that, I, I suggest that they're a medium. And um, I watched a musical that was, was, was performed on this stage, and there were a couple of articles in the newspaper uh, with that writer. Um, one I remember, it's burned into my consciousness. It said, I hate musicals, so I thought I'd write one. Um, <laughs> and I just, I just wondered, I wondered if you... Th- what, what you might reflect on that, since we're on this stage. About what? Where people hating musicals? Yeah, yeah whether or not you can write one if you hate one. And whether... <laughs> whether uh, yeah. why, why would... Why? why? Like, if you hate it, why are you writing it? <laughs> but I, I mean, it, it comes through that you hate it in the final mm. product, too. Like, why? But I think your... I'm, I think what's quite interesting is what you were kind of hinting at, is so many people say, I hate musicals. Whenever I tell anyone what I do or the work I work in, they say, I'm so sorry, I hate musicals. But <laughs> then after about, and I, after about a couple of minutes, when you actually start to talk to them, you realise that they don't actually, because they say, well, I guess West Side Story was okay, and I kind of like Sweeney Todd's, and Guys and Dolls is okay. And I think uh, this is a line I have stolen from you, Adam. Nobody who hates chick flicks films will ever say, I hate films, I hate cinema. They'll say, I hate chip flicks or comedy and I think people do the same with musicals so I think I might be refuting your refutations that they're a genre Um, (laughs) but I think people don't hate musicals I think it's just deeply uncool until recently to admit that you like them and I also think there's a misconception about what a musical is I think as soon as you say the word musical most people think jazz hands tap shoes Um, and then you as you say you have to gently say well have you seen assassins have you seen Follies? Have you mm. seen, you know... Follies has captured. But, but he, it's such a brilliant juxtaposition. Exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. That's why it's a good one, because yeah. it kind of turns it well, all on its head. Musical has become such a dirty word. Yeah. And it's so weird. Like, people go, well, we call it music theatre. It's better. Why? Call it mm. what it is. It's a musical. It's not a dirty word. It's a great art form. Yeah. And the problem is, is it's about educating people that musicals aren't just what you see commercially. Yeah. That are all, as we say in the States, tits and teeth. Do you mm. say that here as well? Yeah. Company. Great. Yeah. Um, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with those musicals. Like, I enjoy good old mm. production of 42nd Street. I have no problem admitting that because I think it's a great sort of spectacle to watch. Mm. But that's not the only musical. I mean, the first musical, mm. I, I, I was a war refugee, ended up in the States, and the only reason I got into theatre was because the school I went to didn't have the sports I played as a kid. And the first musical I listened to was Follies because I walked into like a, a record store and was looking through things and didn't realise I was in a section called musicals. And I took it out and I saw the cover and I went, oh, that's a cool artwork. I wonder what this is. And I went home and listened to it and I lost my mind. But it's, it's interesting, though, yeah, what you say that. about kind of, should we call them music or music theatre? And that's a huge thing. And I'm running into this a lot, trying to get funding to fund new writers' programme and BEAM. 
I can't even get a meeting with the big supposed founders of the arts, people who support opera, fine art, ballet, other types of theatre. As soon as, we have a lovely chat, but as soon as I say the word musicals, you can just see they're kind of this like blankness drops because it's, you know, considered this lesser art form populist. But I think if I maybe said we're doing a play with music or we want to support writers who do music theatre, I might get further in the meetings. And I find that so frustrating. And I think you've got to say what you've got to say to get a new audience to your show, to get the funding. But I would love it if our, I think it, this, I think this applies to our generation. I'd love it if we reclaimed the word musical and were proud about it instead of feeling that we are ashamed of it. I agree. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to stop for a round. I don't think, I, you know, people who hate musicals are going to hate musicals. Don't go. <laughs> Go to something you like. That's why he's a lyricist. There's, you know, there's always going to be people who are, are going to be... I, I'm not a huge fan of opera because I, I, I like to know the story before I go. I need to be in the mood to go and see a Shakespeare play because I feel stupid if I don't follow the plot. Mm. And, you know, opera, I'm sure it's very lovely, but when they're singing a foreign language and I don't understand what's going on, I don't understand what's mm. going on. So I don't go out of my way to go to a, an opera. Um, mm. But I don't say I hate opera because I don't... Yeah. We hate anything, mm. but um, <laughs> I, I, I think, I, you know, musical, I, one of my favourite things is when I write the title page and putting, whatever it is, a new musical. Yay. I love, mm. and I can't imagine ever doing anything other than that, but it doesn't mean I don't go to the theatre and see plays, and it doesn't mean I mm. go and see, I don't go and see, I, you know, I see musicals all the time, I've seen two this week. Mm. I, I love going to the theatre, I love seeing musicals, and I am inspired by seeing other people's musicals. I often, literally, I will come home and I start writing ideas for something. Mm. Lovely. You're all the converted, though. <laughs> yeah, but I've always been that way, I think. Mm. You know, and, and it's always interesting was George and I always had this slight dichotomy. I'm from a state school, and when I went to university, I went to Exeter, and most, well, not most, but an awful lot of people have been at the private school, and I felt like the state school boy being allowed to play with the private school children. I've always, felt, I've always felt a bit like that, writing musicals, mm. particularly when we did Honk Here. I very much had that same feeling, like, why have they let us in? They've never mm. done a British musical at the National Theatre before, and, mm. you know, are they giving us dirty looks in the canteen and stuff, thinking, <laughs> what are you doing with your duck musical? <laughs> um, yeah, but it's the same if you work in a literary department or read scripts. It's like, oh, here's the girl who reads the musicals. She's clearly not maybe as bright or her work's not as important. Mm -hmm. I mean, listen, um, as an actor, you get it all the time. I, I, in New York, I, I'm, I'm thankful that my career in New York as an actor started off as an actor in plays and not in musicals. And it's the same thing here. If, the, if you're a musical theater performer, they don't think you're an actor. But if you're an actor who they discover sings, they go, oh, he's mm -hmm. very talented. Yeah. It's, like, it, it's, it's actually... Uh, you have to sing and dance <laughs> and act all at the same time. You have to sing and dance and act all at the same time. Yeah. Not that yeah. acting in plays isn't difficult, but a musical is yeah. really hard. Yeah, as I say, there are so many moving parts in musicals, it's very mm. easy to, it's hard to read them, and it's hard to do a lot of things with regards to them, so when people think, oh, that must be easy. Well, it's, easy. it's also hard to find directors for new musicals. Yes. Yes. That is a yes. real skill, and That's I'm thrilled that you're I put doing the, it. I put the label on it just because I thought it might get me more work. Turned out, at least <laughs> but it really is, you know, it's yeah. just because you're a director doesn't mean you can direct a musical, mm. because it's so much more collaborative, because yeah. you've yeah. got to be in tandem with the, especially if it's a new musical, mm. you've got to be a dramaturg, because you've got to be chopping and changing right through. I mean, even in Follies, uh, I just met one of the actors who was in Mary Poppins, who's in Follies, and they changed something towards the end and finally said, right, it's going to be this ending. 
Mm. Like just two days before press night. So you're constantly doing that mm. and you're having to collaborate with a choreographer who's going to be doing some of the staging for you. Mm. And, and George and I have found it's hard. And when you find a good one, you hang on to them. It's the same thing with, with uh, composers and, and book writers. Just because you can write plays doesn't mean you can write musicals. Just because you can write a song doesn't mean you can write songs in a musical. And I think that's a huge fallacy that people tend to throw people who have a skill together and think, okay, you can write a musical now. It's like, mm. <laughs> no. And I think uh, a trend I've noticed with new playwrights, I'll be really quick, yeah. it's, it's quite funny because often these great playwrights will be put with a composer and a lyricist. And what I think a playwright doesn't realise that in a musical, often your greatest lines will be stolen by the composer lyricist and put into a song. And the playwright might get really annoyed and say, this is a great line, why is it in the song? And of course, that's precisely what's meant to happen. Um, so that's one of the many problems Absolutely. inherent in music writing musicals. That is all we have time for today. Um, thank you so much for joining us and um, have a lovely evening. Thank you. Thank you.